The first of my posts was a focus summary of Part 4, Chapter 6, and Part 5, Chapter 1. It's a little bit long, but so was this reading. I hope it's still helpful. After Raskolnikov cries to Porfiry to send for his deputies, the door suddenly opens, and Porfiry asks, What is it? At first there is no answer, only the sound of men struggling to hold someone back. But then, a voice says that the prisoner Nikolai has been brought. Porfiry rushes to the door, saying Nikolai is not wanted, and ordering them to take him away. After two seconds of struggle, someone gives a violent shove, and a young man, dressed like a workman, strides into the room. The man stares straight before him, with a determined look and a deathly pallor, as though he were being led to the scaffold. A warder comes in behind him and takes him by the shoulder, but Nikolai pulls his arm away. Porfiry mutters to him, annoyed, to go away, asking who brought him so soon. And suddenly, Nikolai kneels down and says loudly but breathlessly, I am guilty. I am the murderer. For ten seconds, all around him stands silent, as if struck dumb. Porfiry asks in bewilderment what he means and whom he killed. Remaining on his knees, he says that he killed Alyona Ivanovna and her sister with an axe. Porfiry waves away the onlookers, and they vanish and close the door. Angry and flustered, Porfiry begins questioning Nikolai, who says he committed the murder alone, that Mitka had no share in it, and that he was wrestling on the stairs with Mitka to put porters off the scent. He says it all as if it had been rehearsed, and Porfiry mutters to himself that he knew it was not Nikolai's own tale he is telling. Suddenly, Porfiry remembers Raskolnikov. He turns to him to say he must go, and he shows him the door. Though he did not fully grasp the situation, Raskolnikov had regained his courage. He teases Porfiry that he didn't expect this, and asks sarcastically if he is still going to show Raskolnikov his little surprise. Raskolnikov walks out of the office, commenting that now they can officially say goodbye. Porfiry says that that is in God's hands. As he makes his way through the office, Raskolnikov passes the porters from the house, and he hears the voice of Porfiry calling from behind him. Porfiry says that he still has questions for Raskolnikov, and he asks if they might meet again. Raskolnikov, wishing to display his regained coolness, apologizes for having lost his temper, and Porfiry says not to mention it. He says that he hopes they will see a great deal of each other, and— looking earnestly at Raskolnikov, that they will get to know each other through and through. He wishes Raskolnikov well, and Raskolnikov says he doesn't know what to wish Porfiry, commenting that he'd like to wish him success if his office weren't such a comical one. Porfiry asks why comical, and Raskolnikov says that he must have tortured and harassed Nikolai into confessing, and now— will torture and harass him into admitting that he is lying. Porfiry compliments Raskolnikov on his astuteness and his attention to the comic side of things, saying that was characteristic of the writer Gogol. 
Raskolnikov walks home, and when he arrives, sits on his sofa, muddled and bewildered over what just happened. Nikolai's confession was an actual fact, and yet something beyond his understanding. For now he was free, but they would discover Nikolai had lied and would be after him again. He replays in his mind the conversation with Porfiry, shuddering with horror at how much of his hand he had shown and how well Porfiry had played him. He reassures himself that no facts had come to light, but he feels unable to penetrate Porfiry's game. Did he have a surprise for him? Was it a joke? Did he know about Raskolnikov's strange accuser on the street? He hides his hands in his face and shivers with nervousness. Then, feeling again that at least for today he is safe, he feels a sense of joy and decides to hasten to Katerina Ivanovna's, where he would see Sonia. He tells himself that it must be today. At that moment, the door opens gently, and there stands his accuser. It is the same man, but there has been a great change to his face. He looks dejected, and he sighs deeply. Numb with terror, Raskolnikov asks what he wants. The man bows to the ground and says he has sinned, and that he has wronged Raskolnikov. He tells Raskolnikov that he was the man standing with the porters outside Alyona Ivanovna's house, and Raskolnikov recalls a man who had said that they should take him straight to the police station. Raskolnikov realizes with relief that this man knows nothing, except that he had asked about the flat and the bloodstains, and he concludes that Porfiry has no facts and cannot convict him. Raskolnikov asks if the man had told what he knew to Porfiry, and he says that he had, just two minutes before Raskolnikov arrived, and that he was waiting there in the next room all the time. Raskolnikov realizes that he was the surprise. He says that he went three times to see Porfiry, and when he was finally admitted and informed Porfiry of everything, Porfiry began punching himself in the chest, scolding him, running around, and muttering that if he had known, he should have arrested him. Then he put the man in the other room, locked the door, and told him not to say a word. After Raskolnikov left, he let him out, saying he would send for him again. The man bows to Raskolnikov again, asking his forgiveness. Raskolnikov answers, May God forgive you. And he goes out more confident than ever but still recalling, with shame and contempt, his cowardice. Meanwhile, little by little, Luzhin is forced to accept his estrangement from Dunya. His pride has been wounded, but looking in the mirror at his noble countenance, he is comforted that he will find another bride, and perhaps a better one. Remembering again the indignity of his present position, he turns and spits vigorously, which excites a sarcastic smile on the face of the friend with whom he is staying, Andrei Semyonovich Lebeziatnikov. Noticing that smile, Luzhin feels angry regret over having told him about the conversation with Dunya. He is irritable over many things that morning, over that, 
over finding a hitch in his legal case in the Senate, over having taken a flat for his fiancée that was being redecorated at his own expense. Reflecting on the money he had spent on the furniture, he wonders whether the relationship is really irrevocably over, or whether he ought to make another effort. He feels anguished, and in that moment, if he could have slain Raskolnikov by wishing it, he would have. He thinks to himself that he was a fool to have kept Dunya and her mother without a penny, so that they would depend on him for their providence. Instead, he should have spent money on presents and a trousseau, so they would not have refused him so easily. Returning home, he passes by the funeral dinner at Katerina Ivanovna's. Stopping to talk to Madame Lipovexel, he learns of all the people invited. Most of the lodgers, Levitsyatnikov and Amalia Ivanovna, despite their previous quarrels with the family, Raskolnikov, and even he himself. He returns to his room, thoughtful. Lebeziatnikov had been at home all morning. Luzhin despised this man from the day he came to stay with him, and yet was somewhat afraid of him. Lebeziatnikov, once his ward, was now reputed to be a leading progressive, taking part in circles whose activities had become legendary. These powerful circles inspired him with alarm. He had no notion of what they meant, having heard only that they were some sort of nihilists. But in bringing his business to Petersburg, his greatest fear was that they would show him up. He had heard stories of men they had embroiled in scandal and brought to ruin, and he decided at once to protect himself by seeking the favor of the younger generation. For this, he relied on Lebeziatnikov. He had no interest in the doctrines with which Lebeziatnikov pestered him. He merely wanted to know whether he and his cohorts had any power, and whether he could get around it. Lebeziatnikov was an anemic, scrofulous little man, self-confident in speech, poorly educated and rather stupid, who made a caricature of the causes he took up, but who was respected by the landlady because he didn't get drunk and he paid his bills regularly. Lebeziatnikov hated Luzhin in turn. Luzhin had discovered that Lebeziatnikov had no real connections or consequence, and didn't even know much about his own propaganda, and he had begun listening to him only sarcastically. Coming back in the room, Luzhin sits down to the table and begins counting out a bundle of notes. Lebeziatnikov, who has always been poor, tries to look at them with indifference, and he feels that Luzhin is teasing him by reminding him of his inferiority. Lebeziatnikov finds Luzhin inattentive and irritable, even when he begins expounding on the foundations of a commune, and he attributes this ill humor to his breach with Dunya. Luzhin begins asking him about the funeral dinner, saying how surprised he is at the money that has been spent on preparation, and declaring that he has no intention of going. Lebeziatnikov says he will not go either, and Luzhin laughs, saying of course he won't, after the infamous thrashing. Lebeziatnikov says it was all slander, and that he was merely defending himself. He justifies his actions by saying that if men and women are equal, 
then he ought to be able to use violence against a woman in retaliation, but adding that of course in the future society there should be no violence at all. He says that he will not go on principle, because he won't take part in the revolting convention of memorial dinners. He begins lecturing Lusion on the value of such protest, of dropping seeds that will grow up into enlightenment, like the woman who left her family and told them straight out that she had learned from a great-hearted man the value of free marriage and organization by means of communities. Lusion suddenly asks if he knows Marmaladov's daughter, and whether it is true what they say about her, and Lebziatnikov launches into another lecture about hers being the normal condition of women, and her actions of vigorous protest against society. He says that the rumors about his involvement with her, too, are slander, and that he had only been trying to develop her and rouse her to protest. He declares her to have a beautiful character, and Lusion suggests with a giggle that he takes advantage of her fine character. Lebziatnikov replies indignantly that on the contrary she is very chaste with him, and that he treats her courteously and respects her dignity. He regrets only that she has given up reading and borrowing books, for they used to have discussions about such important issues as the practice of kissing hands, workmen's associations in France, and the question of the right in a community to come into another member's room. He is annoyed when Lusion responds sarcastically about how one might come in at an inopportune moment. Lebeziatnikov boasts of his own willingness to take on unpleasant topics, on his readiness to clean out any cesspool, because it is honorable work, and better than the work of a Raphael or a Pushkin, because it is more useful. Lusion laughs and puts his money away, having finished counting it, but leaves some of the notes on the table. Lebeziatnikov is angry over his sarcasm, and he blurts out vindictively that it is only Lusion's ill luck the previous day that has made him so ill-humored. Lusion interrupts to ask him haughtily if he really knows Sonia well enough to ask her to come in for a moment, because he wants to see her. He asks Lebeziatnikov to be present, to forestall rumors about his motivation. Lebeziatnikov says nothing could be easier, and five minutes later, he returns with Sonia. Lusion meets the shy girl affably, but with a shade of condescending familiarity. He asks her to sit down, and as she does, she notices the notes lying on the table. In a whisper, he asks Lebziatnikov if Raskolnikov has come, and he responds that he had just arrived. Lusion asks Lebziatnikov again not to leave them, for God knows what people might think and Lebziatnikov agrees. Lusion sits down before Sonia with a dignified manner meant to tell her haughtily not to mistake his motives, and she is overwhelmed with embarrassment. He pays his respects to her mamma and asks her to make apologies for him that he cannot attend the dinner. She says she will, and jumps up to go. He tells her to wait, for he has another object in wishing to see her. She sits down, and her eyes rest first on the notes, and then on the massive ring on his finger, and, not knowing where else to turn, 
she looks him in the face. He tells her that in talking to Katerina Ivanovna the day before, he determined that she is in a preternatural position, and that he wishes to be of service to her in any way. Sonia asks whether he had mentioned the possibility the day before of Katerina Ivanovna receiving a pension, and he tells her that the idea is an absurdity, since her father had not been in the service when he died. He laughs at Katerina's absurd dreaming, but Sonia defends her, saying she simply believes everything from the goodness of her own heart. Lucian says he might assist her by arranging a subscription, or something of the sort. He says he wanted only to lay the foundation for the idea, and they can discuss it later. He insists, however, that it would be unsafe to put any money in Katerina's hands, given how wantonly she has squandered it on the dinner, and Sonia again stumbles over a defense of her noble motives. Lucian then asks her to take the small amount he is able at the moment to spare, and he hands her a ten-ruble note. Sonia takes it, flushes, and jumps up to take her leave. When she is gone, Lebeziatnikov praises him for his humanity, saying that even though he objects to private charity, since it only promotes the evil, still, he witnessed Lucian's actions with pleasure. Lucian calls all that nonsense. But Lebeziatnikov feels a renewed respect for Lucian, and he tries to help him by making a speech meant to convince him that legal marriage is a despicable and humiliating practice, and that, in being separated from Dunya, he has been set free. Lucian listens without merriment, and in fact hardly hears it at all, because he is preoccupied by something about which he excitedly rubs his hands. The next of my posts was called Conscience. I mentioned recently that I have been consumed by the question of what, in Dostoevsky's eyes, makes a man good. The answer is not obvious. In this novel, the murderer is not evil, the prostitute is a saint, the drunk deserves sympathy, and the reputable businessman is a worthless scoundrel. Dostoevsky allows us no comfortable conventional notions. He requires us to observe carefully and to think deeply, and he asks to see men from his own very distinctive point of view. I will not claim to have come to any clear and definitive answers to this question, but I do have a few thoughts to share, and I am interested in hearing yours. It seems clear, at least, that the evil man purposefully exploits or manipulates his fellows. The good man sacrifices for them. From Lucian's efforts to hold Dunya captive by making her financially dependent, to Aliona Ivanovna's mistreatment of Lizaveta, to Svidrigailov's dependence upon, and then infidelity to, and then alleged murder of his wife. The novel's clear villains all have this sort of calculated exploitation and abuse in common. But it has to be purposeful. If, like Marmeladov, his exploitation is a consequence of a confessed weakness, and if he loathes himself for it, he can be forgiven. Dostoevsky's paragon of virtue, Sonia, is characterized by a continual and uncomplaining self-sacrifice. She does not merely degrade herself for her family's sake. She does so with serene and silent acquiescence, 
without a word of pity for herself or accusation against her exploiters. She has only love in her heart, and she is incapable of speaking a cruel word, ever, of anyone. Raskolnikov's moments of goodness, too, are those when he sees someone suffering and is moved to help. Dostoevsky seems to have a tender pity for those who suffer, and to ask us to overlook any faults brought on by their suffering. Katerina Ivanovna's fits of rage and acts of cruelty are to be forgiven, since she has endured such a life of indignity and poverty. Marmoladov's bouts of drunkenness and reckless irresponsibility deserve our compassion, because he lives in such a state of squalor and self-contempt. But it seems, again, that their suffering has to be conscious. Minor characters abound who live in poverty and squalor, but who seem blithely indifferent to their condition, existential or moral. I think I agree with member Dave Landy's suggestion that fundamentally, Dostoevsky believes a man is good or bad according to whether he has a conscience. It is a conscience that gives him depth of soul and substance, that prompts him to reflect on his own behavior in relation to his fellow men, and that enables him to suffer. It is because these are among his standards that we find ourselves, if we submit to Dostoevsky's moral universe, having sympathy for a murderer. The murder itself is judged, unequivocally, as evil, since afterward Raskolnikov suffers for it in every fiber of his being. But, though we are asked to judge the sin, we are also asked forgiveness of the sinner. He has a conscience that will not quit. He does not just consider, he contemplates, he ruminates over every aspect of moral existence. And when he comes to conclusions that are monstrously in error, he is conscientious enough that his suffering is of epic proportions. Last year, I struggled through The Brothers Karamazov. I need to read it again, by a different translator, and with you. But one of the things I enjoyed most about it was what I saw as Dostoevsky's reverence for characters who exhibit a somber, serious, and deep self-reflection, and his contempt for those who are shallow, phony, or otherwise insensible to their own faults. Those seem to be standards that pervade his works. I hope that is at all helpfully orienting to you. Please share your thoughts with me, because this issue seems to get to the heart of this novel. The next of my posts was called Lebeziatnikov. One of my favorite elements of this chapter was, unquestionably, Dostoevsky's merciless and comic mockery of Lebeziatnikov. Some of it seemed specific to time and place, and was difficult for me to understand but some of it was downright hilarious, and at one point I laughed out loud in the middle of a sentence and had to go back to re-record. We were first introduced to Lebziatnikov through Marmeladov, as the man who had given Katerina Ivanovna a beating for her failure to repay a loan, and who keeps up with modern ideas, and has been educating Sonia. Luzhin has heard of Lebziatnikov's reputation as a leading young progressive, taking an important part in influential circles. But, in reality, he is not much more than an uneducated, unintelligent blowhard 
who only half understands the ideas he picks up third-hand, and who makes a mockery of his own causes. His physical description is memorable. Quote, Andrei Semyonovitch was an anemic, scrofulous little man, with strangely flaxen mutton-chop whiskers, of which he was very proud. He was a clerk, and had almost always something wrong with his eyes. He was rather soft-hearted, but self-confident, and sometimes extremely conceited in speech, which had an absurd effect, incongruous with his little figure." Unquote. Since scrofulous is not a part of my everyday vocabulary, I had to look it up. Literally, it means having visibly swollen lymph nodes in the neck. And figuratively, it means being morally contaminated and corrupt. But this description was more memorable still, for its scathing humor. Quote, he was one of the numerous and varied legion of dullards, of half-animate abortions, conceited, half-educated coxcombs, who attach themselves to the idea most in fashion only to vulgarize it, and who caricature every cause they serve, however sincerely. To me, he doesn't come across as villainous like Lusion or Svidrigailov. There is sincerity in him, but it doesn't run very deep. I love the tangle he gets himself into in justifying his violence against Katerina Ivanovna. First, he defends it as self-defense against an act of despotism. Then, as an act of equality, since if women are equal, they ought to be equal in fighting, too. And then stumbles over an account of how all this squares with the fact that his vision for the future involves no violence at all. He ends up simply muddled and he changes the subject. The part that made me simultaneously laugh and groan out loud was the description of his moral instruction of Sonia. He is dismayed that Sonia, whose moral quandaries are very literally life and death, had given up the study of issues like whether it is insulting for a man to kiss a woman's hand, the state of workmen's associations in France, and— this is where it got me, the question of coming into the room in future society. I said last time that Dostoevsky cautions us against the dangers of empty theory, of intellectualism detached from reality. Lev Ziatnikov, with his third-hand theories, his bumbling confusion, his self-important moral lectures, and his apparent obliviousness to the real moral issues those around him suffer, seems like another variation on this theme. The last of my posts was called Inductive Analysis. Reflecting on the Read With Me program, one of the things I'm happiest about is that I am able to offer commentary and analysis that is inductive, that builds from chapter to chapter, and that integrates only the information we have been given thus far. If, while you were reading the novel, you were to look up resources for guidance— you would typically find two things, a chapter-by-chapter -chapter plot summary or analysis of the characters and the work as a whole. It is difficult, if not impossible, to find commentary that stays in pace with you as you read. That is especially easy and gratifying with this novel, because it is effectively new to me. When I teach works in my classes that I've read more than a dozen times, I have to work to keep myself in my students' context, 
and not to betray themes or events that they couldn't possibly anticipate from where they stand. This method allows you to experience the work as it was meant to be experienced. You don't suffer plot spoilers, and you aren't spoon-fed interpretation. Instead, we can work together to try to puzzle things out as we go. I can, I hope, be useful to some degree in the process, simply because of my own knowledge about, experience with, and love of analyzing a work of literature per se. But I am not prematurely revealing or calculatedly steering you toward my own prior-formed conclusions. That's what's supposed to be the virtue of a book club. But my image of a conventional book clubs is the one shared with me by a student, whose mom hosted a book club in their living room. He described standing in the corner, watching them banter aimlessly about their feelings about the chapter, bristling with the urge to butt in, and finally letting go the irrepressible question, but what is the theme? I giggle every time I think about it. So, forgive this post that you could accuse of being pretty self-congratulatory, but I love that Read With Me neither suffers the hazards of purposeless book club chatter, nor those of the omniscient and authoritarian professor. Instead, we work together, step by step, or even sometimes misstep, struggling to understand, and, ultimately, I hope, earning the reward of a true and deep understanding.' 